I'm Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Briefing. It's the latest news headlines to your headphones this Monday, 12th October. How would you like a five-star hotel built on your grave? That's what's happening to Australians in Bali right now. Today on The Briefing, Jan Fran and I speak to the Aussies fighting for a Bali memorial site. Some of the survivors and their family members still see the park as as holding parts of their lost loved ones. And it's a site that transformed everyone who was there on that night and survived. But before that, I'm joined by Annika Smethurst with the big news stories of the day. In the exact manner of the Burns alien from that infamous Simpsons episode, it seems that someone else has developed a protective glow. I bring you love. That's right, US President Donald Trump claims to have developed a protective glow of immunity from COVID-19 after his doctors confirmed that he is no longer contagious. It seems like I'm immune, so I can go uh, way out of a basement, which I would have done anyway, and which I did, because you have to run a country, you have to get out of the basement, and uh, it looks like I'm immune for, I don't know, maybe a long time, maybe a short time, it could be a lifetime, nobody really knows. The White House physician put out a memo overnight stating that the president has been fever-free for 24 hours and that his symptoms have improved. I'm in great shape. And I have to tell you, I feel fantastically. I really feel good. And I even feel good by the fact that, uh, you know, the word immunity means something. Having uh, having uh, really a protective glow means something. I think it's very important to have that. Now, some doctors are sceptical about this, to say the least. The White House physician's memo says there's no evidence the virus is actively replicating in Trump's system. What it doesn't say is that he's tested negative to the virus. Trump is due to speak at a campaign event on Monday, US time. And Annika, there's also been a presidential debate called off. Yes, despite this glow that he says he has, Trump's refused to do a virtual debate on October 15. So that second debate is now scheduled for October 22, which so far we think he's going to go ahead with. Two big names are leading the charge for stronger anti-trolling laws. This is not about celebrities. This is not about politicians. This is about every single Australian because this impacts every single Australian. The time to ignore trolls is over. The time to prosecute trolls is here. That was NRL commentator Erin Mullen speaking on 60 Minutes. She and former Brisbane Broncos coach Anthony Seabold are calling for tough new federal laws to deter would-be bullies. Now Mullen, who receives a lot of gendered abuse online, like many high-profile Australian women, described what the comments are like on pretty much every rugby league site. Every single one was either that I was a woman, that I was ugly, that I looked like a sl- that I'd never played the game, that I belong in the kitchen. Different footballers that I've had dalliances with about bosses at Channel 9 that I must have slept with. It's just vile. Seabold also has personal experience with trolling. He stepped down as coach of the Broncos after a vicious personal rumour went viral in August this year. I went through some pretty dark times there a few weeks back because the amount of hate, the amount of defamatory comments that were spread and, and people were happy to spread. It was it was crazy, really. And that's not the Australia that I grew up in, you know. Now, Molan, whose dad is also a federal senator, she's met with the Prime Minister and the Communications Minister, who she says support her push. Molan wants to change the narrative from coping mechanisms for victims to punishments for perpetrators. Annika, have you ever been trolled? 
extensively. In fact, even overnight, I woke up to some uh, more trolling this morning telling me I was cancer and a bunch of other awful things. And I laugh about it, but it definitely has an effect on myself. I, I get told to put down the phone, to not do it. And I, I've turned off a lot of my, you know, alerts to this sort of stuff, but it doesn't help. It doesn't fix it that when you wake up, you have to deal with it. How about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely been trolled. And like you, I, I almost worry how much I've hardened up to it. It's mm. probably been, I don't know, maybe seven years, eight years or so since I kind of started working in the media and this was just part of the job, being told online that you were a terrorist, all these explicit details of how people were going to have sex with you really violently. And I just, I, can't, I, I don't like admitting it, but I, I'm just kind of used to it now. And no one Same. should ever have to be used to it. <laughs> no, I think this is actually a really important narrative change that Erin and other people are pushing for. It is unacceptable that people talk to each other this way and that they think that just because they do it online or anonymously or because they're doing it to people who have a profile that it doesn't hurt. Good on you, Erin Mullen. The search for a surfer who was taken by a four-metre-long shark three days ago has been called off. 52-year-old Andrew Sharp was knocked off his board and dragged underwater while surfing with seven friends at Esperance on Western Australia's south coast on Friday. His board washed up on the shore hours later. Emergency services struggled with really big swells yesterday and now say they've ended the search with his family's blessing. This is Australia's seventh fatal shark attack this year. It feels like seven. one wow. of these every week. It's incredible. Now, Jamila, it sounds like Melbourne's big step out of stage four, which we were hoping would be brought forward to this Sunday, won't be happening. And now the lockdown itself is being challenged in the High Court. There are reports in the nine newspapers that hospitality figure Julian Gurner is arguing that some of the tougher rules, like a five-kilometre travel limit, violate Melbournians' constitutional right to freedom of movement. That's the same laws Clive Palmer was relying on to challenge WA's border closure earlier this year. Meanwhile, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews said the city probably won't hit the five-case daily average needed to ease restrictions this Sunday in line with his government's original plan. But he says there will be some further social changes, but not much more for businesses. There will be steps that will be able to be taken next Sunday. They will not be as big a steps as we had perhaps hoped, but they will be significant. And they will allow uh, us to move more freely. They will allow us to connect more easily with those that we love the most, those that we miss the, miss the most. Jamila, I hate to ask as a Victorian, but how are things down there? I think there's some real optimism in the air, Annika. We had some beautiful weather on the weekend, which is rare for Melbourne anyway. Um, so it meant everyone got to be outside having those all-important five-person picnics. But all anybody can talk about right now is the fact that we haven't made our deadline for under five and how sad they feel that we're not going to have the freedoms that we were hoping for. And Annika, I just wanted to tell you just about the the huge personal effect these are having. Not only is it really affecting a lot of Melbournians' mental health in particular, but for example, my husband's grandmother died yesterday. The funeral will be this week in regional Victoria. We have to think about where we have the funeral because he and I can't attend a wake in a pub or a restaurant in regional Victoria because we have to act in regional Victoria the way we would if we were in Melbourne, so we can go to the funeral, but we can't go anywhere else afterwards. I think these personal examples are, you know, 
really telling of how awful it is down there. I went to a Zoom funeral, which was held in Melbourne a few weeks ago, and it wasn't until I sat there watching on a computer that I really realised just how awful it is for everybody down there. I, I know a lot of people, I'm a Victorian, just not living there at the moment, and I hear it every day, but those personal moments, those funerals or those weddings that people are unable to attend, it, it's just horrendous. Thanks, Annika. Now Jan's jumping in to take a look at the Aussies fighting for a Bali memorial site. Australians have been caught up in a terrorist outrage in Bali. A suicide bomber inside Paddy's bar. Yeah, it was, it was so loud, it was just... I don't know, none of us could believe it. Blasts ripped through two nightclubs in Bali, Indonesia, killing 202 and injuring scores more. 18 years ago today, 202 people, including 88 Australians, were killed in a terror attack in the tourist district of Bali. A powerful car bomb hidden inside a white Mitsubishi van was detonated by a suicide bomber right outside the Sari Club, a renowned open-air thatch-roof bar in the Kuta district. Damien Murnane is one of hundreds of Australians who was in Bali that night. I was just staying around the corner of Poppy's Lane. So I turned the corner of Poppy's Lane. I reckon I would have been about two or 300 metres past the Sari Club, and that's when the first explosion happened. And all the windows, obviously, down, this, uh, down the lane of Poppy's Lane all blew out. And, you know, obviously, immediately you just go to the ground. And I think a lot of people thought, I think it was a gas explosion or, you know, no one really knew. So everything was in darkness. Like, you know, I'll never forget the, uh, a girl coming up the stairs, getting help. And, you know, she was more or less burning, burning as, as we speak. And, you know, she was, her skin was dripping off her. And uh, they, I remember just the Balinese chucked her in the back of the ute or something and took her off. But... And then uh, within about 10 or 15 minutes, you know, it was like everyone was we were getting people back and everyone was treating each other or whatever. And then I still remember vividly these four or five Balinese people ran up the stairs of the hotel yelling, telling everyone to get down. And you're thinking the worst, but it was, it was an explosion in the back of the, I think, I think it was just in computers or something like that in the back room. So our heart was pumping there. And then the reality set in and... Um, I still think we just, no one obviously slept that night. And I think, uh, if I can remember, a lot of people panicked and got all their luggage out and went to the airport. Damien, it's been 18 years. Has the way you think about what happened changed over time? Has it gotten easier? It gave me a new lease, thinking, well, Jesus, uh, if it hadn't, if, if I had to be blown up, you know, it'd give me a second chance of life. I was thinking, well, it's not that bad, actually. So it helped me in one way, if I could say. So to think, well, don't stress, you know, life's too short. Move forward and look to think positive. Damien says he used to visit the makeshift memorial across the road from where the Sari Club once stood, along with other Aussie families who had lost loved ones. The blast site itself has remained dormant for almost 20 years, a flattened, ashen tribute to the hundreds of lives lost but that might be about to change. It really is a, a bit of a, a slap in the face. It's disheartening me as a survivor who, who you know, lost friends right there in that, in that land who, you know, my life changed in that moment as well. That's Phil Britton. In 2002, he was on a footy trip with 19 of his mates, seven of whom died in the blast. 
Phil is talking about plans to redevelop the site of what was the Sari Club into a five-storey commercial complex of restaurants and bars. The question of what to do with the site is at the centre of a bitter dispute between the landowners and a group of Aussies who are pushing for a permanent memorial. Carmen Jacks is one of those Australians. Uh, She's also a researcher from Edith Cowan University who's looking into the impacts of terrorism on communities. Carmen, thank you for chatting to us today. Can you tell us a little bit about the site and what you'd like done with it? So at the moment, the site is still a car park. Uh, and it has been for the last 18 years. I believe that the Peace Park has been able to get uh, a another embargo on co- um, any sort of commercial um, interest being, being able to be built on the park. Uh, and what we'd like to see is we've moved away from the memorial concept and more into a museum concept. So we'd like to see something that talks about what happened there um, the motivations for what happened there and the fact that more than anything, we're looking to provide a future for some of the, the widowed children uh, from, the peace part, from, the, from the bombing as well. So they want to find a way to employ local Balinese people. Specifically, they want to find a way to employ some of the, uh, the widowed children and provide a future. So initially this park was conceived more as memorial and as time has gone and grown and more contact has been sort of had with the local community, there's been a turnaround and it's been become more future focused. So whilst it will remember the event and it will delineate what happened and the deaths there, it will also um, provide a conversation as to what peace is and looks like and what a future can be without terrorism, but also providing employment and education for local Balinese children. It sounds like uh, developers have been interested in this land for some time and have pushed pretty hard to be uh, turning it into something more commercial. How have you and some of the survivors felt about that? It's pretty tough. It's And this is where some of the cultural differences within Bali and Australia sort of, there's a fine line between them or it becomes, you know, you can sort of see it rearing its head, um, very much some of the survivors and their family members still see the park as as holding parts of their lost loved ones. Um, and it's a site that transformed everyone who was there on that night and survived. The, the memorial that's currently built, while it's fantastic and they have no issues with what's across the road, they all, you know, we, we all like that, it isn't where it happened. So it doesn't quite communicate with or to the people who lost so much or were transformed in that place. And the site itself of the Sari Club where so many deaths occurred, we'd love to see that just just turned around and turned into something positive and turned into something that within that space of Kuta would be quite different, a green space, um, a space for reflection and thought. So what sort of barriers are you coming up against um, in in pushing for this memorial or museum? That land price really is is the main issue, that, and it has been for years. I talked about the owner. The owner is the lessee, so no one can actually own Balinese land other than the local Balinese. What they do is create very long-term leases for commercial interests. The owner isn't necessarily the owner. 
um, but does have a commercial interest and, you know, probably saw himself, themselves earning millions of dollars from the commercial interest that was built there. And so when they ask for a certain property price and then a compensation price, the compensation price is about how much sort of money they think they're losing. And even when they've been offered a different block of land down the, down the road, they're not interested. So that is the main issue, is actually overcoming those commercial interests and having the money to purchase the land, which we've got, but it's literally just buying the property. That's the issue. Everything else is in place. There's a design, there's great political support, community support. There are people who are interested in being there, working there, making it happen. Um, We just have to be able to buy the land. Carmen, how does it make you and some of the locals feel about it? I know we're talking facts here, but I think there's so much emotion wrapped up in this site yeah. as well that you, you can't possibly separate that from the commercial dispute that's going on. One of the things that I noticed when we were there in Bali and we were on the Sari Club site on the night of the memorial, but then also around it, was how much emotion is still invested in it. In the morning around 5am, uh, the local, the widows uh, get up and they do, um, they have a ceremony uh, to remember their, um, remember those who died there. And then later on at around 11 p.m. when the bomb went off, a small group of Australians uh, or UK citizens, Japanese citizens, whoever's there to remember on that night will gather at the Sari Club site around candles and will have a moment uh, of peace and reflection. And that's where they always gather. That's where they go. It's not the memorial, um, although that is where the the local women go. When I spoke to some of the local women about the plans for a peace park across the road, they were enthusiastic. They thought it was a brilliant idea. Often I would help light the candles because there were so many of them. And then I'd always step away because it wasn't my place to be there in that circle of grief. But those people who were there there was a mixed emotions about our presence even in the space. Some people would welcome it and others would tell us to F off, we're grieving. And that, that to me, I realised just how much was still affecting all of these people and that they hadn't let go of, of so very much and how hard that must be every day, let alone when you go there and you remember this thing and when you arrive, it's still just a dirty car park and nothing is there. There is a disconnect between commercial interests and the the emotional needs of those who survived or yeah. lost people there. Carmen, thanks so much for joining us this morning. That's all right. Jan, so many Australians lost their lives in the Bali bombings. Carmen and other campaigners remind us of the responsibility we have to honour the dead. I've got no mm. personal connection to the tragedy, but it makes me really uncomfortable to think about that location as a fancy restaurant. Yeah. I mean, I guess the fight for, you know, the the peace park or the museum versus the commercial development, it's been so long in the making, 18 years. Um, I guess let's hope it's resolved one way or another before the 20th anniversary of the explosion, which is just around the corner. Join us tomorrow when we look at why exactly the author J.K. Rowling has been cancelled. 
by her fans. Subscribe to us at Podcast One Australia or wherever you get your podcasts. If you are liking the briefing, the best way to support us is to tell a mate about us and you can stay in touch at The Briefing Podcast on Instagram for all the latest headlines. A Podcast One production.